Well, it has been two and a half months since we've been in Daniel, so we'll do just a little reviewing. One of the kindnesses of God is that even though Daniel probably seems fairly remote from the loss of our sister Cheryl, really what we are going to see today is so perfect for what we're going through together as a family. It may not strike you when we read it in a moment at first, but I think you'll see it as we work through it. This is a great passage. It's, a, it's the glorious gospel of Daniel. And it is that very message that we've sung already this morning, that God is over all, that he is reigning, and that he is bringing his kingdom to bear in this world. So as crazy and chaotic and broken and painful as this life can be, we live with this absolute hope. Our Father in heaven is reminding us, is reassuring us, I am on the throne and I have got this. And that is what he's going to tell Daniel and that is what he wants to say to us this morning. Let's go right to the text. It's Daniel chapter nine. Daniel chapter nine. We'll start in the middle of the chapter. The reviewing I talked about is going to be um, very brief this morning. I want to read the end of the chapter, calling this the glorious gospel of Daniel. This is the famous 70 weeks, if you're familiar with the book, and if you're not, you will be. Um, This is considered by many to be the most important prophecy, not only in the book, but some even in the entire Old Testament, that is long-range, sweeping, hall of history prophecy. Many regard this as one of the most, if not the most important of all. So let's read now chapter 9, verse 24. 70 weeks, or literally 70 sevens, and understood by everyone, virtually, including the ancient rabbis, as 70 periods of seven years. The weeks or the sevens being seven years. So 490 years, 70 sevens is the way it could be paraphrased. Even Well, 70 sevens is literal, but 70 sevens of weeks, of years, are decreed about your people. Now, I want you to see this. Daniel has been praying. Here's the brief review. He's been praying, and we looked for two weeks at that prayer, and we really focused on the godliness of his heart because he is humble and contrite. He has read in Jeremiah that the prophecy that says this exile in Babylon is going to last for 70 years, and, and then God is going to judge Babylon, and he has judged Babylon. They have been conquered. And so he's reading and and reviewing from Jeremiah and he's realizing the 70 years are up. This is ending. And so he just falls before God and he cries out to God and he just, Lord God, it's because of our sin. It's because of my sin that we have suffered these things. Nothing that you have done, it's of us. And yet he turns to plead with God. We'll read this in a few moments. Just to plead with God for, for his people and for his city, the city, the city of God, Jerusalem, and for the house of God, the temple. All of them are destroyed. All of them are in ruins. And he wants to plead with God. And now God is answering him. And this is the answer to Daniel's prayer. And I just want you to see, especially in this first verse, the glorious gospel that God declares to Daniel. Verse 24, 77s, 490 years are decreed about your people and your holy city, what you've been asking me to do something about. And here's what I'm going to do. 
Here's what these 490 years are going to accomplish to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and prophet, and to anoint a most holy place. That's what I'm referring to as the glorious gospel of Daniel. This is what I'm going to do. I mean, you're in exile. The city sits in ruins. The temple is not standing. It's been destroyed. And this is what I intend to do. I am going to finish it. I'm going to put an end. I'm going to atone bring in everlasting righteousness, finish up vision and prophet, anoint the holy of holies would be a more literal translation. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks, seven times seven. Then for 62 weeks it shall be built again with squares and a moat but in troubled time in a troubled time and after the 62 weeks an anointed one shall be cut off and will shall have nothing and the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary its end shall come with a flood and to the end there shall be war desolations are decreed And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week, and for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. On the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. As I've said, this is regarded by many as the most important prophecy, not only of Daniel, but even of the Old Testament itself. That is long-range, world-sweeping, history-encompassing prophecy It's also one of the most difficult to interpret. Before we get into it, because I know at the end of the day, I know some of you are not going to agree with what I teach. That's okay. Guess what? There's massively, a massive variety of views on what this is saying in the church today. And it has been true since the time the rabbis commented on this. But what I want to emphasize from the beginning, and I want us to stay clear about, in the middle of all the differences and the ways you can understand this, and we can disagree and debate what this is talking about and when it will be fulfilled, in the middle of all this, we have to keep clear the most important question is, why did God say this? And that answer That answer we can all agree to, regardless of what we think of the specifics. It is not here to serve as a crystal ball. It's not here just to tantalize our curiosity about end times. Uh, J. Vernon McGee said it, and it's so true. It's easier to get Christians interested in the Antichrist than in the Christ. We get all worked up sometimes about end of the world, and is it now because something's going on in the Middle East? especially surrounding Israel. And when, when things really shake in the Middle East, everybody starts freaking out and starts looking at prophecy again. That is not why God gave these prophecies, just to tantalize our curiosity about the end of the world. What God is saying to Daniel and through Daniel to his people and still saying to you and me is, I've got this. Daniel's heart is, is poured out And he's just pleading with God. Oh, God, your holy city is in ruins. 
Your house is in ruins. And I want you to see something about what is on Daniel's heart. If you'll look again there at chapter nine, just back up a little bit to the time when he's praying. Uh, Verse 16 would be one place we could start. O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your holy, or your city Jerusalem, your holy hill. And I think in particular the holy hill here would be the temple mount. Because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. I want you to notice something as we, as we read through this. It's, it's the... It's the apex, the high point of Daniel's concern, and it really ought to speak powerfully to us. Now, therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy and for your own sake. There it is. Daniel's greatest concern is for the reputation of God, not just his own well-being or his own comfort. Of course he cares about the people being in the land again and having their world rebuilt and living in peace and having God's blessing. Of course he wants that too. But he is most of all concerned for the reputation of God. When people look at Jerusalem, they think, Yahweh, Yahweh's nothing. His city has been destroyed. keeps pleading for this. Oh Lord, make your face shine upon your sanctuary which is desolate. Oh my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolation and the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. Oh Lord, hear. Oh Lord, forgive. Oh Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, oh my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. Just ask yourself, I have to ask myself this, is is this our concern as we think about ourselves as a a Christian family? I don't even want to say as a church because I don't want you to um, instantly think of an institution or organization that kind of exists somewhere like on a corner here that you may or may not happen to attend on a given Sunday. I want to think of us as a, as a family. As you think about us as a family, is your heart concerned about how we reflect on the reputation of Jesus? And do we pray for that? Now, there's no perfect church. I'm not expecting that somehow we're going to get it all right and there's never going to be any blemish that somebody could point at. (laughs) That's never going to happen. As long as I'm here, it's not going to be perfect. But our heart concern, not just that we have a good thing going and that we like what happens on Sunday mornings because we like the music or we like the teaching, at least we hope you do sometimes, We like what's happening for the children, the teens. But most of all, that Jesus is being honored, that Jesus is being made more attractive, that Jesus is being made more well-known, and that people are thinking better of Jesus through us. 
Let that be our prayer. Let that be our concern. Add that as you pray for Crossway Fellowship. You pray for our needs. Add that to your praying. God is saying to Daniel, as Daniel's poured out his prayer and he's asked God to restore the city and restore the temple for God's own sake. God is coming back to Daniel now in this prophecy and saying, Daniel, I've got this. Reassuring Daniel, I am God over all. Daniel's saying, King of heaven, come down. And God is coming back saying, I am God over all. I've got this. I've got my city. I'm dealing with it. And I'm dealing with my city and my house and my people and my reputation and I'm dealing with it in my time and in my way and for my reasons. That's what it means for God to be sovereign. It doesn't mean he has all power to do what we want. (laughs) It means he has all power to accomplish what he has determined. And so what's expected of us in response to this prophecy we're looking at? We look at the 70 weeks and we argue and debate over whether it was all fulfilled already or it's yet to be fulfilled in the future and whether you are covenantal or dispensational or neither or whether you are mill or post-mill or pre-mill and we argue over all these things. What in the end is the intended response to this prophecy? I think it is hope, first of all, to a Daniel who aches for God to work is to give him a sense of what's coming and what God is doing and so he can live his life and finish his life with hope. And then for patience. One of the most important things, if you, if you were following, tracking with this, you saw, saw something that's gonna happen. The, the, the temple, when this was given to Daniel, the temple was in ruins and then he's gonna tell him it's gonna be destroyed again. But if you were listening to the glorious gospel at the front, there's going to come an anointing of the Holy of Holies. It's going to be built, destroyed, and rebuilt. What's that all about? That is, I've got a timetable, Daniel. I've got a schedule. I've got things I'm doing in this world. And so there's also the call, not only to hope, but also to patience, to perseverance, to knowing that there is a lot of waiting in godly life. Just a lot of waiting. And you've tasted that probably. You've probably tasted that in your careers. You've probably tasted that sometimes in the starting of your family or even trying to have a family. Dealing with issues that are deep. They just don't go away quickly or the answers don't come in a hurry all the time. And so we're called often to wait. In the spirit of Habakkuk, If you've been around me for a while, you know one of my favorite prophets. Chapter two, verse three says, God says to Habakkuk, for still the vision awaits its appointed time. This is a great framework for the prophecy of Daniel. It has an appointed time. I've appointed a time. It's gonna be, in this case, he's talking about 490 years. It hastens to the end. It will not lie If it seems slow, give up your faith and fall into despair. It will surely come. It will not delay. And when he says it won't delay, he's not saying you're going to get it quickly the way you want it. He says it will not be one minute late on my schedule. 
And then he finalizes that by calling us to live by faith. You've got to hope and you've got to trust and you've got to be patient understanding what I'm doing. I want us to spend a few moments in Second Peter also. This will be on the screen. If you want to open to it, go ahead, but give most of what I want to focus on here in the screen. Just, just giving us a framework. Understand what I'm doing here this morning. I'm wanting to say, okay, here we have a controversial prophecy. Likelihood is some of you will not agree even with my position. That's okay with me. I don't mind that because some of the greatest thinkers and, and theologians and scholars, Bible scholars in history don't agree with what I think, okay? That's okay. This is just controversial and debated. But we really need to get the main point. We really need to see the purpose and not get lost in the arguments. Second Peter chapter three, verse one. This is now the second letter I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets. Ah, there you go. Read Daniel again. Remember that. And the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. And then, the, then Peter takes a moment. I'm not going to read it this morning, but he takes a moment to say, don't, don't be bothered by the scoffers. They're going to say, come on, dude. It's been 2,000 years since Jesus. Give it up. Haven't you figured it out yet? What does he say in response to that? He says, do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. So in God's calendar, it's been two days since Jesus was here. Not a big deal. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. Why? Because he loves people and wants them to come back to him in repentance. Later on, Peter says, a few verses later, he says, big question, then what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness waiting for the hastening, the coming of the day of God? That's the important question in prophecy is what kind of people should you be then? Verse 13, but according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth which in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found in him without spot or blemish and at peace and count the patience of our Lord 2,000 years since Jesus. Count the patience of our Lord as salvation. Take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, that's what this is about as we now get into the specifics of this prophecy. Well, I've been telling you already it's difficult and it's controversial and it's been debated for millennia. And even some of the commentators say, who would I be to think that I'm gonna suddenly give you the final answer to everything? So don't be shocked if your favorite Bible teacher doesn't agree with me. He or she will learn. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> well, whatever you conclude, whatever you conclude about this text, we all should come to it humbly. And we must not lose sight of the main reason that it was given and what a godly response to it is. E.J. Young, Edward J. Young, he was a highly regarded, reformed uh, Old Testament scholar. 
He said, this passage is one of the most difficult in the Old Testament and the interpretations which have been offered are almost legion. J.A. Montgomery, the history of the exegesis of the 70 weeks is the dismal swamp of Old Testament interpretation. Yeah. Douglas Stewart, these are all Old Testament scholars. It would require a volume of considerable magnitude even to give a history of the ever-varying and contradictory opinions that have been offered. And Sidney Gridenus, Excellent, excellent book. It's been so helpful to me in preaching through Daniel. Reading commentaries on the last four verses of Daniel 9 is akin to entering a bewildering maze. So many choices of ways to take, so many blind alleys and dead end. Which way out? In AD 400, the brilliant church father Jerome simply listed nine conflicting opinions of the great teachers of the church and left it to the reader's judgment as to which explanation ought to be followed. Whose? That was long before rationalism, higher criticism, and dispensationalism added their various opinions. Today, one is confronted with a mind-boggling variety of options and combinations of options. Now, I'll be honest with you, the teacher in me naturally feels like I should just start laying out all the possibilities and give you all the pros and cons. But I am not gonna do that. You can sigh a great sigh of relief this morning. That would, that would take at least three weeks and you would find it extremely tedious. The purpose on Sunday mornings, in my point of view, is not to give you lectures. Those kinds of things can be addressed in the seminary classroom or in our personal studies. But I believe that Sunday morning should be more about calling us to godly living and to equipping us for life. And so as we look at this and as we work our way through it, Patiently and humbly, let's listen, let's consider whether you think this is the way to understand it or not. You consider what you think it's driving us toward, but see clearly, see clearly the glorious gospel that God has announced to Daniel. I want to just give you one quick example of of a way that we could go into this and it could become very involved and very tedious. because I think it's probable some of you have been exposed to this. Two major scholarly efforts have gone in to trying to show that from the very day dating the decree that is referred to here to rebuild Jerusalem, and by the way, that's one of the debates, which decree are we talking about because there are four of them, but then you choose one of those and two major scholarly attempts have been made to say from that very date to the date that Jesus was crucified, exactly 483 years, that last seven being later, 483 years to the day. Now, what I want to say to you is, first of all, I find that unconvincing. And I find it unconvincing for this reason. You have to jump through a lot of hoops. It's a very complicated way of figuring the days and the dates and the months. And the more complicated and the more special circumstances you have to kind of drum up to make the calculations work, the less convincing I find them. I also find it unnecessary to try to say to the day exactly because that's our Western way of thinking. We hear a number and we want technical precision, especially if you're an engineer. 
And that isn't the way the Bible usually uses numbers. The Bible usually isn't worried about it being exactly to the hour, the moment, the second, 70 years or 490 years in that way. And so don't worry about those kinds of things. If your favorite teacher has taught that and you find it a blessing, that's good for you. But I just want you to know we're not going to take that approach and that is not my intention this week or this morning as we work through it. I want to hopefully feed and build up and equip so that we are walking out of here with the intention to live with hope and with patience and be on kingdom mission, knowing that God is accomplishing his purposes. Today, Daniel is ultimately, Daniel 9 is ultimately a word for you and me who still live between the times We live in between. We live in this world, but not for this world. The kingdom has come, but it has not completely and entirely come yet. And we live between, so we live with hope. And we live with patience. And in the face of tragedy and heartache, like the loss of our sister, we live with the assurance this is not the end of the story. Surely he has borne our griefs. Surely he has carried our sorrows. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God Now, I incline, I'll just let you know this right now, I incline toward seeing this as the final fulfillment of that promise in 924 to anoint the Holy of Holies. Can't say dogmatically, but I incline that direction. But then comes this great word that you know so well. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. That is the gospel. No more mourning, crying, pain. The former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. That is, that is the message of Daniel's prophecy for the 70 weeks. Well, as I noted earlier, this prophecy is given in answer to Daniel's prayer. If you pick it up at verse 20 now, Chapter 9, verse 20, while I was speaking and praying. And now we have a beautiful summary of Daniel's prayer right here. Confessing my sin. If you read 1 to 19, he's confessing for himself. Really have to admire that and respect and honor that and learn from that. Daniel's a remarkably godly man. You think of who to look up to in the Old Testament. I look up to Daniel and think, oh, that I could be such a person. And yet, Daniel has a very humble heart before God at this stage. No sense of, of, oh, good, it's almost over because of all those idolatrous, uh, you know, uh, oh, my idolatrous people. Finally, I've had to pay this price, but it wasn't my fault, and finally, I'm going to get what I'm entitled to. There's nothing like that in his prayer. He just humbly before God acknowledges his sin. So I was confessing my sin and the sin of my people, Israel, and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God. 
While I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. There were no sacrifices being offered, of course, but they still had that daily framework in their minds, weekly and and, uh, annual framework in their minds, so established way of life for them. Oh, Lord. Oh, verse 22. He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, oh, Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. I just stop on that and think for a moment. Just, I don't want to try to build too much on this. It's dangerous to over, overstate something like this, but a man like Daniel who had served God so faithfully and pursued such an obedient and uncompromising life, even from his youth, you remember he wouldn't eat the king's food and then the time of the, uh, of the lion's den, he refused to hide his praying, that there's a special place in the heart of God for such who are devoted themselves. I mean, God loves the prodigal, Right? God runs out to embrace the prodigal when he comes home. And yet, here we find this very striking statement, you are greatly loved. And so, therefore, consider the the word and understand the vision. And we're trying. We really are trying. We consider it. Now, verse 24, 70 weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city. We've already described for you that that's referring to 490 years What are these years about? Let's look at it now in a little more detail. This is glorious. This is the gospel. Says, first of all, it's not just the end of the exile. Daniel's praying. The end of the exile has come. The 70 years is up. Lord, restore your city. Restore your temple. He says, what I'm going to do, my my long-range intent here is to finish the transgression. Notice that it's called the transgression. Now again, every single phrase here, you can find multiple interpretations and multiple ideas about when it will be fulfilled or how it will be fulfilled. So I'm just simply going to lay out for you how I understand this passage this morning. I understand here the transgression to be Israel's apostasy, Israel's unfaithfulness to their covenant with God. What got them into the exile in the first place? Daniel just prayed about that in chapter nine. That's what the prophets have been saying. That's even what God said from the very start. If you go back to Deuteronomy, here's my covenant. I make these promises to you. You live by these stipulations, these commands. We have a mutually agreed covenant I am absolutely committing myself to you to be your God and to care for you and and to meet your needs, to protect and to bless. In exchange for this, you are going to love me and you are going to serve me and you're going to obey me. But he very clearly said to them, if you do, you will be blessed. If you do not, there will be a price to pay. The blessings and the cursings found in the book of Deuteronomy 
And then that's what the prophets are really, that's what, you read through all of Isaiah to the end of Malachi and you hear all this stuff and you see all these vivid images of judgment and destruction and you wonder sometimes, what is this all about? It's really just saying to them, you have been unfaithful. And so I understand here the transgression that God is referring to the fact that he is going to end, he is going to put an end to Israel's unfaithfulness. That that one day will come to an end. Now already you can see, taking it this way, that begins to push us beyond even the first coming of Jesus. Beyond the cross and resurrection of Christ begins to push us out to something that still hasn't happened. Israel is still apostate to this day. Next thing that he says he's going to do is he's going to put an end to sin. Now there are two basically, among us who hold to the word of God, take this as real revelation from God and not just somebody's ideas or somebody's fancy or somebody's speculations. We understand this to be revealed truth Among us, there are two broad ways in which it is understood. It is either understood that all of this was fulfilled in the death and resurrection of Jesus and the destruction of Jerusalem to come, part of the rest of this uh, prophecy, or that it was fulfilled partially then and yet there is still a future fulfillment. And what I'm suggesting to you is that I see that there is still a fulfillment that has not yet taken place. And here again, we have a statement to put an end to sin. Interestingly, the word translated to put an end here is the same word for seal a little bit later where it says to seal or to seal up vision and prophet. Probably in both cases, it is referring to ending them bringing them to their fulfillment or their completion or their ending. And I would take it here when he says to put an end to sin again that yes, indeed, the cross fully atoned for sin, but I simply ask the question, I ask it humbly, did the cross end sinning in this world? And I think the answer to that is obvious. The third thing that it's said here is to atone for iniquity. Iniquity is another word for sin. And it refers to the idea of doing what is wrong or what is wicked. To atone for iniquity, of course this refers to the cross. There is no other atonement. Even the Old Testament sacrifices did not atone, really. They covered But if you read Romans chapter three, Paul's very, very clear that God was using them. He was using them symbolically, but also he was using them in waiting for the real and final and actual atonement which would be made on the cross. So of course, to atone for iniquity refers to the cross. It's interesting that the rabbis understood this, generally speaking, I can't speak for every rabbi, but many rabbis understood this as referring to the sufferings of Israel. That by suffering, Israel would atone for her apostasy, her unfaithfulness. What do you think when you hear something like that? It makes sense in a way, doesn't it? I mean, I think it's built into the human heart. I think this is part of the natural human religion. The natural human religious impulse is, I've got to work. 
I've got to improve myself. I've got to be good enough to get in to heaven. That's the natural human default position. And we know that the gospel tells us that isn't true. It's not true. It's not so much that it's not true. It just won't work. It's impossible. It's unattainable. That's the same answer for this as well. Could we suffer enough to atone for our sin? What is the atoning price of sin? It's death. So if you want to suffer for your sin, you must die. And that eternal death is not a death that you are going to want to willingly pay. And that is why there was an infinite death on our behalf to atone for our sin. And then it moves on that the first three obviously have to do with sinning in some way or another. The next three now are going to deal with the other side of the equation to bring in everlasting righteousness. This one, I mean, I've heard and read and studied it carefully. I just do not see any way that you can make the word everlasting be satisfied by the death and resurrection of Jesus alone. In other words, This cannot, in my estimation, refer simply to our permanent justification. Declared righteous, righteousness imputed to us by faith in Christ so that it is ours then forever. It doesn't sound to me like a natural understanding of what's said here. This is saying God is going to bring in, bring into what? Bring into this world everlasting righteousness. And that sounds to me like the establishment of his full reign when sinning is brought to a complete end. Then he says to seal both vision and profit. I mentioned already that this is the same word translated to end, bring an end to sin. And so I would understand this as to complete or finally fulfill the need for the function of vision and profit will be finished. And then the last one, to anoint a most holy place. That's the ESV. The language that is used here occurs 38 times in the Old Testament. And it is always a reference either to the holy of holies or to the furniture used in the temple. Those who believe that this was fulfilled in the first coming of Christ understand this to be the anointing of Jesus in his baptism. Now, theologically, you can create a framework and you can go there. I just ask you, does the language sound like it says that? And to me, it does not. And it is a system of thinking that will drive us certain ways rather than the language of the text. And I'm simply doing my best to understand the language of the text. What is he talking about here when he talks about the anointing of a most holy place or anointing of the holy of holies? As I said earlier, The temple is in ruins when this is given. It's going to be destroyed again, we're told in this prophecy. And then there's going to be a holy of holies anointed. Two possibilities. One would be that there will be a restored temple in the millennial kingdom of Jesus. And that is a very widely held one. You can read about the prophecies of that rebuilt temple in Jeremiah 33 and Ezekiel 37. Like I said, I'm not going to go into all of this today to try to show it to you and and make this endless and endless, but simply to refer you to those passages. 
So it could refer to a rebuilt temple in the millennial reign of Jesus, or it could actually be looking even beyond that to the new Jerusalem we just read about in Revelation 21, where God himself, the very presence of God, the holy of holies on earth was a shadow of the very presence of God. And so the anointing of the most holy could even refer to that day when we don't really need a building anymore because God himself will dwell with us. By the way, for those of you who are wondering, that view is entertained by, acknowledged by such men as John Walford. It's not simply a, uh, some other theological point of view that some of you might disagree with. So, verse 25 goes on then to begin to unpack all of this. How is this gonna work itself out? Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and to build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. In two places here, verse 25 and verse 26, you see this anointed one. That should be ringing bells for a lot of you that know the word of God. Anointed one is the word for what? Messiah. Hebrew, Mashiach. Greek, Christos. What is this talking about? I would understand both of these references as referring to Jesus. Not everyone does. It's not necessary. The way the ESV has translated this, that an anointed one, there'll be seven weeks till the coming of an anointed one, that would refer to some other anointed one during the intertestamental period. Perhaps Cyrus, the view of many of the great rabbis was that this was referring to Cyrus. Could be Zerubbabel, it could be Nehemiah, could be one of the high priests. Priests were anointed and called anointed ones, Mashiach. Kings were anointed and called Mashiach. When we call Jesus Messiah, we're simply saying he's the anointed one. He's the anointed king, the king of all kings. We're not saying he's the only one ever called Messiah. He's the Messiah. But I do understand both of these to refer to Jesus, and the New American Standard actually translates it this way, and you'll see that you can understand verse 25 a little differently here. So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree, it's on the screen, to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. Linking those two together. If you break them apart the way the ESV has done it, you have to come up with an anointed one in the intertestamental period. But if you link them together as you can in the Hebrew, then you can see that this is referring to Jesus. And Jesus came. And Jesus lived his life and performed his work those 69 weeks after the decree to rebuild Jerusalem. Verse 26. I'm sorry, I skipped something here. I want to back up. When it talks about the temple the city being rebuilt with squares and moat, but in a troubled time, that is referring to the rebuilding of the city during the intertestamental period, very clearly. And it was a troubled time. Many people opposed them. If you go back and you read Ezra, Nehemiah, you see the opposition that came against them as they sought to rebuild 
the temple, or the temple and the city. Then we're told in verse 26, and after 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off and have nothing. That's the crucifixion. That's the way I would understand that. And then it says, the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood. When did that happen? You history students, Bible history students, that happened in 70 AD. At least that's the way I would understand it. I think actually most people would agree and understand it that way. That's referring to 70 AD. And then the next phrase says, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. Now we start to get into the point at which this is all argued and debated, especially. There are those who will simply say, I don't see any basis for breaking off this final week, this final seven, final seven-year period from the other 69. And so they will argue it that way, that it should all have taken place in that time, in that framework, so that when you read, to the end there shall be war, desolations are decreed, and he shall make a strong covenant, they take that to refer to the Roman a general become Emperor Titus, who destroyed Jerusalem. My problem with that, I've already shown you, is that a lot of the language, to me, is not satisfied in the cross and resurrection, nor in the destruction of Jerusalem by Titus. Verse 27, the big question here, it says, and he shall make a strong covenant for many, with many for one week. Well, who is this? Who is the he? When you look backwards, notice who is going to destroy the city and the sanctuary. It says the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Who is that? Who destroyed it? The Romans did. And everyone agrees to that. And there's no question But then the question is, the he of verse 27, is it talking about a prince of that very time, that would be Titus, or is it talking about a later prince to come? And as I said, a major objection to the idea that it would look ahead is, what basis do you have for saying that this isn't fulfilled then? That the 70 weeks all stay together rather than breaking the last seven off and postponing them until later? Well, I would suggest what I've already argued, but then notice verse 27 very carefully. It says, he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. That did not happen. And then that did not happen in the time of Titus. And for half of the week, what's half of seven years? Three and a half years. Is that ringing bells now? That three and a half year period is referred to at other points in Daniel and it's also referred to in the book of Revelation. If you go back in Daniel to chapter seven, there you remember that vision of the, the, the sea, the wind is blowing in all directions and the sea is in great turmoil and four incredible beasts come up out of the sea. And the fourth beast there very clearly is the Roman Empire, and everyone agrees with that. And the Roman Empire inflicted great suffering on the people of Israel. But then as you read through that, and Daniel is very intrigued and very interested to understand this fourth beast, and he asks more about it. This fourth beast, there are four horns that come from this fourth beast, and then another one arises out of that. And then we get this great vision of the Ancient of Days seated on his throne and one coming with the clouds of heaven like a son of man. 
and to him is given everlasting kingdom. And this, little, this horn, this, this extra horn, this 11th horn that arises out of, of that fourth beast is destroyed by the Ancient of Days and the kingdom, the everlasting kingdom is given to God's people and the son, the one like the son of man reigns. Now, very clearly, you have a Roman Empire that came in its historical time a couple thousand years ago, but you also have this figure arising out of that empire, but he is clearly a figure that everyone virtually recognizes to be the Antichrist destroyed by Jesus. There is a huge gap even there between this beast in its first expression and these horns and this final horn in its final expression. And so as I look at all of this, and again, to try to be humble and honest with the scriptures and not trying to push any particular system of theology, I just don't see verse 27 being fulfilled in the past. This speaks of clearly Verse, uh, chapter 7 of Daniel, chapter 13 of Revelation of one called the Antichrist in my estimation. For half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. Some people actually interpret that to refer to Jesus. Jesus has come, he's made the covenant, the new covenant with us in his blood and he's put an end to sacrifice and offering. It just seems to me to really be stretching the language there especially in the light of the rest of Scripture. On the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate for half a week. I'm sorry, I backed up to the wrong place. On the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate. Who is this talking about? This, I would say, is Titus. I'm sorry, this is, this is the Antichrist. I'm sorry, excuse me. This is the Antichrist. As I said, some interpret this as Titus, some interpret this as Jesus. I take this as Christ, the Antichrist destroyed by Christ when he returns. And we would understand that today as the tribulation period. And finally, this will go on until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. Jesus in his return will come and will destroy the Antichrist. And then then I would say we have the complete, full fulfillment of verse 24. When all of this is poured out on the desolator and his time is ended, Israel's apostasy will be finished, sin will stop, iniquity will be atoned. It has been atoned for already. Everlasting righteousness will be ushered in. Vision and prophet will be done and a most holy place will be anointed. All right, now I know, even as we've done it rather quickly, perhaps a bit, a lot to take in there. But let me go back to where we started. Why is this here? It is. It is the object of study, especially those who love to study the word of God, and maybe especially even more so for those who love prophecy. I would say to you today, if you love prophecy, that can be a good thing. But you can love prophecy in a very wrong and unhealthy way. 
If you're just all concerned about all the signs of the times and trying to read the morning newspaper and find in the headlines the fulfillment of everything so you can kind of be both nervous and, and excited about something's gonna happen real soon and Jesus is gonna come back, of course, of course, of course we should be eager for Jesus to come back. But an unhealthy fascination with these things does not create godly living, does not make you an effective servant of Jesus. But when I ask you the question, why is this here? It is here so that we can know again that we know and we serve the God who is over all. And we can know that he has this firmly in his hand. When it says 77s are determined, remember when I referred to this some weeks back in the study, those, that's a divine passive. Determined by whom? By God. By whose power will they be brought to pass? By his power. When we say the theme of Daniel is our God reigns, those are not idle words. When we sing those songs, they are not just upbeat to make us feel a little better for the day. They are the rock that cannot be moved. I think we're gonna sing a song today, assuming we sing what I heard rehearsed this morning. Your kingdom unshakable. That's the glorious truth of this passage. However this works out, and however it is fulfilled, it will be a fulfillment of the unshakable kingdom of God. And so when we lose our sister, our hearts break. But we also, we also know, do we not, that her torment is over and that we will see her again and that God is going to establish everlasting righteousness so no one ever has to be tormented like this again. And we pour our lives out then to serve that very agenda, that we will be instruments and agents of that righteousness now. We will be, like so many of you did, pouring yourselves into Cheryl's life. We'll just keep pouring ourselves into people and into needs because we live with this hope and we patiently wait for it and we lovingly serve our great God.